Kirkwood, welcome to the April episode of the podcast. As you may know, we've been closed for a couple of weeks. Even though we are currently stuck at home, there's still plenty that you can do and still uh, interact with the library. That's right. There are multiple different avenues that you can take advantage of while being unable to join us right here at the Kirkwood Public Library. So let's just basically take this moment to review them. There's Overdrive and Libby, a wonderful place for you to take advantage of ebooks and audiobooks. And then for your kids, we've got a couple different things that the kids could enjoy. There's Overdrive Kids Reading Room, so you can get materials for uh, both your kids and teens. And then there's Tumble Books, where you can enjoy hundreds of books, videos, and read-alongs from different genres for kids. Now, for this podcast, we have a few things coming up. We have an interview with Allison Rollins, author of The Library of Small Catastrophes. She's our special guest since April is Poetry Month. And we also have an interview with Elaine Beats. What, New York Times bestselling author Elaine Beats? That's right. Awesome. Her new book, A Star is Dead, will be out April 7th. Not only that, we'll have discussions of our book reviews, and Allison has been so kind to give us a poetry reading. That's right. Of course, I completely forgot about that. Also, our service that we're going to highlight this month is something that you can take advantage of right at home. Stay tuned for another great episode. It's National Poetry Month. We have an amazing guest, Allison C. Rollins, born and raised in St. Louis, who currently works as the lead teaching and learning librarian for Colorado College. She is a 2019 National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow. Her poems have appeared in numerous publications, and her debut poetry collection, Library of Small Catastrophes, is available right now. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Uh, so if you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and... Maybe just a little background? Sure. So as stated, I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. The quintessential St. Louis question is, where did you attend high school? (laughs) You passed um, the test. Correct. (laughs) Nairings Hall High School. So Catholic all-girls high school in Webster Groves, a neighboring community to Kirkwood. I then went to Howard University, which is a historically black university in Washington, D.C., where I studied psychology and was really immersed in kind of a baton being passed of the Black Arts Movement to a contemporary, um, really vibrant community of young poets. So I spent time on campus with figures like, you know, Toni Morrison, Sonia Sanchez, Amiri Baraka, Haki Matabuti, Mari Evans, and kind of had the, what would be early beginnings of a notion that, like, contemporary poetry was a thing and something that I was particularly invested and interested in and wanting to learn more about and as a way to pick a more maybe sustainable or what seems stable career I enrolled in a PhD program in English which I later dropped out of. I was searching for a way that I could merge my love for literacy and the arts with some type of career path that was fairly flexible and so eventually that landed me in librarianship and I worked for Washington, D.C.'s public library system. I worked for the St. Louis Public Library, the St. Louis County. I returned to my high school, actually, in a, in a weird turn of events and served there as the head librarian and also an English instructor. And the past few years, I've been working in higher education. So libraries is where 
I ended and have been trying to carve a path of teaching and library advocacy in relationship to creative writing. And so I now live in Colorado Springs, actually, as of last August. Very beautiful countryside, Colorado. Yeah, I've never lived this far west before. I've never had a relationship to mountains. So it's very interesting. It's very pretty. You explore several themes in your poetry, such as race, sexuality, and spirituality. Uh, What were your inspirations for the Library of Small Catastrophes? So this book is, I think, very much kind of a, a nod to nostalgia in a sense of I'm a true bibliophile and archivist, and I wanted to capture or collect or explore what it means to have bodies and minds that act as storehouses or libraries of sorts for our everyday experiences, for our immersion in culture, for our interactions with the world, with our immediate and uh, close circles of family and friends, and then the nation and then the larger international scene. So this book is really kind of exploring the notion of what would it mean to catalog one's lived experiences or what would it mean to catalog one's relationship to their country of origin or what would it mean to catalog one's relationship to their body as it moves through the world and to speak about grief and loss that we undergo every day sometimes even in the form of very mundane ways so the title library of small catastrophes just speaking to the way that on a cellular level, on a cultural level, every day we're processing and dealing with loss. And how are we able to do that in a way that allows us to live and hopefully thrive? And what are the ways that complicate that for people that are existing in the world and particularly marginalized subject positions? So as a black queer woman, what are the ways in which my living is compromised or there are various hurdles and obstacles that I face but still manage to create to make things that I hope are beautiful and artistic? And then how do we deal with the storage of those? So you all know as librarians, you know, in a catalog or on a shelf, there's only so much space. So we're constantly having to weed or get rid of things or let go of things. And so how do we grapple with that loss? How do we justify that process? How do we make sense of that process? And what does that look like in our own lived experiences? So when a loved one passes, how do we go through all of their things and justify keeping some things and getting rid of others. Or if you have an incredible, I don't know, baseball card collection that's taking up a lot of space in your home, how do you justify (laughs) continuing to keep and maintain that collection or its value to you and others around you? I I can certainly agree to that. I often feel like my collection of things grow, but my home keeps shrinking because of it. Exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing process or and maybe you have some advice for aspiring poets? Sure. So my writing process, I think I privilege, which lends itself, I guess, to my advice is that I recently was introduced to this notion of you can be a reader who writes or a writer who reads. And I definitely think that I'm a reader who writes. I tend to center and privilege reading as literally part of my life and at the forefront of what I do. And so much of my writing process comes out of constant immersion in reading and being introduced to as many texts as possible. And so the joy of working in a library has been even sometimes without my own knowing, you know, students are constantly approaching me to look up research topics or things that they're interested in. And then suddenly that sparks 
kind of some inspiration or insights that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I think spending time in libraries, spending time with community, building community with other writers, with other people that are genuinely just curious across the arts is really helpful and fruitful. Um, most of my writing takes place at work. <laughs> Because, as you all know, in public life, like this Sunday, I'll work a 10 to 4 shift at the library. So while most people have weekends off or time to kind of divorce themselves from work, much of librarianship is at the library, at the research desk or at the library doing different work. And so much of my writing process is at work, taking snippets of information or snapshots or things that catch my interest and then being able when I get a spare moment to sit down and really write and reflect and revise, revisiting things. But I don't view it as, I don't view writing as being separate from my regular work day or a separate practice that I do in the morning or at night or I guess as like isolated from the everyday work that I do as a librarian and as an educator. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel the same way at times that um, being in the library, it just sort of, you're just surrounded by words in a way. And so it's, makes sense that it connects with your work and the writing process. Totally. And there's always something going on. You kind of have to be a master of multitasking. Yes, that too. Exactly. <laughs> so what's next for you? Uh, can you give us a sneak peek of what you might be working on? Yeah, so this book, I think, tends to dwell a little bit more on historical past, on discussions of of family and it kind of the origin story perhaps of Alison C. Rollins and for the next poetry collection at least I think I'm really interested in at this point notions of futurism so a much more um, Afrofuturist take on some of the same themes and subject matters. I'm kind of a Trekkie at heart and think that science fiction or the future is always being or can be viewed in conversation with the past and or the present. And so the next book is going to be a lot more, I think, futuristic and surreal, if that makes sense. And then I'm also working on a nonfiction project in relationship to nature and what it means to live in this particular part of the country at this moment in time. So I've signed up for a survival class that's offered by an Aboriginal living school in Arizona, so I'll spend 10 days trekking around Arizona with limited resources as a method of uh, survival preparatory training. And so I'm really interested in the language that surrounds like post-apocalypse living or survival and the aftermath of like ecological disaster, um, how those type of courses get created, who typically participates in them what exactly is being learned or explored in those types of settings. So that project will look at some of those themes. And then I'm also working on hopefully a novel. So yeah, many things. Yeah, they sound all incredibly interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I quite enjoyed the uh, Library of Small Catastrophes, and that's coming from someone who, uh, who doesn't read a lot of poetry. I yes, thought. and I thought the audiobook was amazing. The reader did a great job with it. I loved listening to the words. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, yeah, a very uh, rich, complex experience. I, I quite like it. Also, uh, one of the things that I love uh, entomology and the origins of words, and uh, I had the experience of learning where the word autopsy ca came from through your audiobook, and I thought that was quite interesting. <laughs> yes, I love entomology dictionaries. So uh, as you also work as a librarian, and uh, uh, we always love to ask this of all librarians, uh, do you have any great stories about the library you'd like to share with us? I wish. 
wish they had more, I guess, funny or exciting library stories. Some of mine are kind of traumatic, but I, one that particularly shapes a poem in the book centers around my experience working in the St. Louis public library system. And it was a particular night we were closing the library. At this time, I hadn't gone to to achieve my master's of library and information science degree yet. And so I was still navigating and learning the different ways in which library staff are created on this hierarchy, depending on having this particular degree. And so I was pretty low ranking in terms of where I sat on the library staff. And we were closing the library and there was a particular patron that set off our um, security sensor system as she was exiting. And so what we realized is that she had stolen some romance, popular kind of mass paperback romance novels, and she had ripped off the covers and placed the books themselves on her persons and didn't realize that they had um, sensors inside. And so it was a kind of very loaded, philosophical, powerful point for me because I thought as perhaps a future library science professional or the director of a library or the manager of a library, what would my personal stance be on this type of encounter? And so it made me really think about the ways in which we kind of police access to items, the ways in which people in communities are hungry for access, are hungry for materials to read, and the ways in which sometimes things are prohibited. And while arguably people can agree that stealing or dishonesty in the form of taking things that are supposed to be publicly shared as problematic or wrong or bad. But I think there can be a little bit more nuance and compassion in how we practice a shared economy in the library. And I think it's one of the very few examples in our society of spaces in which we agree collectively to share goods and to make things available for everyone, hopefully to have equitable access. And so that, while that's not like, I don't know, the funniest or happiest, maybe uplifting story, it was very critical and pivotal in my decision to enter the field as a professional and to try to move towards diversity and equity work in librarianship on the whole. I think it's incredibly fascinating and, uh, and a very powerful part in your book. Thank you. And so speaking of uh, diversity issues of access to books, uh, recently in Missouri, there has been a surge in conversation about book banning. Could you please elaborate on the importance of diversity or identity and slash or identities and viewpoints in, uh, in story crafting? Sure. I mean, I think that it's been proven that people benefit from seeing versions of themselves in the literature that is on library shelves. Um, I think me mm -hmm. literature often acts as mirrors and people want to be able to see themselves reflected in the things that they read. It communicates to us our culture, what we value, what we appreciate, what we deem worthy when we walk into a public library space and see what has been curated and collected. And so I think it is part of our work and it is certainly an ethical component that we are committed towards creating the widest amount of variety or access to the widest variety of people. And unfortunately, I have somewhat of a bittersweet relationship to Missouri as a state. And then also, I mean, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through 12th grade. And so that greatly limited my access to a wide variety of things, both in a curricular perspective and an educational perspective and the, the resources and materials I was allowed to read or look at. And so I think that we need to be committed towards exposure, towards 
creating what I've termed, you know, additional mirrors for people to be able to see themselves reflected in what it is that they read. Unfortunately, Missouri is a bit more conservative than I am when it comes to some of those issues. Uh, well, we are in complete agreement. Yes, I'd say well said. <laughs> Thank you. So one of the things we um, ask uh, often of our intervie- uh, interviews is what is your favorite book and or what are you currently reading? So sometimes people don't want to pick their favorite because it's like picking their favorite child. So one or the other. Yeah, that's accurate. I don't, I think recently I've oddly been returning back to, I really loved growing up reading Roald Dahl books. So my mom would read the BFG to us at night. I recently returned, I'm developing a syllabus that's talking about the use of insects in literature, so I returned to James and the Giant Peach. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think those books were really, really formative to me in terms of the use of surrealism and merging, I guess, magical realism with just narrative reality in ways that really made sense to me as a child, and I... I never really got extensively into Harry Potter or some of the other Twilight books, some of the other like big time fantasy collections, but Roald Dahl's novels have still continued to resonate with me in a particular type of way that I find really valuable and and impressionable on my writing career. And then in terms of things I'm currently reading, that list is always extremely, extremely long as a library. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) we can uh, relate to that. (laughs) Stacks are huge. <laughs> yeah, my, my nightstand is covered. Exactly. Thank you for joining us today, Allison. I, uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest today was Allison C. Rollins. Allison, thanks again. Thank you. So, Kirkwood, I don't know if you've heard, but we have a new service. It is called Universal Class. And this is a great program that you can find by just going to our website and clicking on Universal Class. They have over 500 online classes. They offer a variety of courses on subjects like computer training, writing skills, accounting, pet care, and so much more. Continue your education with Universal Class right from your home with your Kirkwood Public Library card. Many of our patrons will know our special guest, Elaine Beats, as a former St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist, a prolific New York Times bestseller, and an award-winning mystery novelist. Her newest book, A Star is Dead, will be available later this month in bookstores and in your Kirkwood Public Library. Elaine, we are so pleased you can join us today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for uh, contacting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. All right, so we're going to just jump right into the questions. So, Jagisha, would you take it away? So our first question is, uh, Star is Dead is the fourth title in the Angela Richmond Death Investigator series. Would you introduce our patrons to Angela Richmond? Who is she? Angela Richmond is a death investigator. And what's interesting about a death investigator is this is a fairly new profession. And it uh, was created in St. Louis. And what happened was there were not a lot of, in the 70s, about 1978, there were not enough pathologists to cover uh, to cover murders and, and other forms of homicide. And so they came up with the idea of having trained civilians to do this, people who were not doctors. And the title 
they were called death investigators, and the death investigators would go out and they worked for the medical examiner, and they were in charge of the body. So the police handled the scene, and the death investigator handled everything to do with the body. And the training was given at St. Louis University at their School of Pathology. And so I took the training, and I passed it. I'm not a certified death investigator, but I did pass the training, and it was absolutely fascinating. Wow, that is fascinating. So is this similar to like a coroner, or or is that different? It's different. A coroner is elected. It's an elected official. And a coroner does not even have to be a medical doctor. Um, In fact, in one state, there's a coroner who also runs the ambulance service. So uh, (laughs) he's got a (laughs) bit of a tie-in with his job. But... uh, well, I was going to say that I believe there's a pretty fascinating episode from uh, that John Oliver program where they where they kind of do a deep dive into some problems with that elected official with coroners, how sometimes it can be a good thing and sometimes it can be a bad thing. Right. And that Oliver episode, which I've seen, is amazing. And it, it, it really hits the nail on the head. But Angela works for the she, she works for Shoto County. And Shoto County is a mythical, uh, uh, it's, it's a mythical county. It's very similar to the richer parts of St. Louis County. And when I was a reporter, I worked a lot of this area. And so Angela is uh, covering some of the stories that I couldn't write about when I was a reporter for the Post. Oh, nice, nice. Sounds pretty interesting. Well, uh, spoiler-free, uh, could you summarize your new book, A Star is Dead, for us? Sure. A Star is Dead concerns a, a celebrity, and she's mostly famous for being famous. I think you are familiar with those kinds of celebrities. <laughs> she was a great beauty in the 1960s, and she was in a couple of movies. One was called Flower Power, and the other was called Eternally Groovy. And now she is a one-woman show. And her last stop is in St. Louis, and she's giving her one-woman show there, and then she's going to Shoto County. And Shoto County is just uh, delighted and and agog to have this uh, celebrity coming for a party. And so everyone comes forward for it. And what her name, the uh, celebrity's name is uh, Jessica Gray. And by the time Jessica finishes her visit, everyone wants to kill her. Oh, no. She's managed to insult everyone. What happens is Jessica leaves in her limousine. She has a se- has a seizure. She's just drunk her kale drink. She's peddling this kale drink, which is supposed to bring you eternal youth. And it seemed to me the most disgusting thing that I could make that people would pay a lot of money for. <laughs> but, I agree. But she's got her she's got her kale drink here. She drinks it in front of a large group of people, and she says, this is what's you know, keeps me the way I am, forever beautiful. And then she gets in her limousine, and on the way there, uh, she has a seizure and dies. So there are four people in that limousine, and one of them poisoned her. And the question is who? So it's kind of a locked limo a mystery, and I, I had a lot of fun with it. I, I hope you'll enjoy it. I, I bet we will. I mean, uh, who doesn't love a locker room mystery? I was going to say that sounds exactly kind of what it is. Yes. 
All right. So the next question is to you, as you mentioned earlier, you took the medical legal. Yeah, I think I said that right. Medical legal death investigators course at St. Louis University. So was that the inspiration to the death investigator series or did you do was it basically what came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> OK, first I took the course. Oh, okay. And that was the, that was the inspiration for the series. So far as I know, there are no other death investigator series. Uh, I was fascinated by how this job works. And part of the training is you, you have to get over the, oh my God, reflex when you see a dead person, because mm -hmm. that's not going to tell you anything. The important part is that the dead speak. And you need to listen to them. You need to find out what they're telling you. So if you're at a crime scene, there's a lot the death, investig death investigator has to know. You have to see, is the person appropriately dressed? For instance, if you find a body in bed and they're wearing a long sequin gown, something's obviously off. Right. You, you need to check things like... There are a lot of things that, that can quickly change, and so you have to photograph that. There was a mystery solved in St. Louis. It was a murder of a family, and one of the things they found was melting ice cream. So death investigator photographed the melting ice cream as soon as she got there, and that helped solve the crime because then they could figure out from the rate of how quickly the ice cream melted, roughly what was the time that this home invasion took place and the family was killed. It was a lot of things like that. As I said, it was completely fascinating. Definitely. Great book series. I imagine it would make a fantastic procedural on television. I think so. If you know anyone interested, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take a look for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The Death Investigator series is definitely not your first series. So what what other series do you have that our patrons could enjoy? I have three other series, and one is the Josie Marcus Mystery Shopper series. And that's a cozy series. It's very different from the forensic series. And in that particular, Josie lives in Maplewood, which is one of my favorite St. Louis communities. In fact, Maplewood gave me the key to the city, I'm very proud to say. Oh, and, fascinating. Yeah, yes, I actually have it framed on my wall. Oh, neat. So Josie, Josie lived in, in Maplewood, and Maplewood is like Kirkwood in, in that it's it's a city with a lot of neighborhoods, and people know each other. And uh, you don't see that in a lot of places anymore. So Josie was set in, in Maplewood, and then I had the Dead End Job series, and that was set in St. Louis. Or I'm, I'm sorry, that was set in... Uh, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I really enjoyed that. My character was Helen Hawthorne, and it's it's a very humorous series. And the first in the series is Shop to You Drop. We had Helen, and the fourth series is the Francesca Veerling series. That was my first uh, series, and it's set in a newspaper. If you like newspaper series, you may enjoy it. My character was a six-foot newspaper columnist, so we're talking a real creative stretch here. <laughs> well, and and you patrons out there can check these books out and are at Kirkwood Public Library, and you'll find them in the mystery section. Yes, and I have to say that uh, as a writer, I could not be a writer without libraries. 
you have my books for your patrons because I know a lot of patrons are serious mystery readers. I am too. I read four to five books a week and there's no way I could afford that. So without the library, I'd be lost. And also I use the library to um, do research. They answer questions. They look things up for me. And so I really need the library. Yes, absolutely. Since you live in Florida, but you're a St. Louis native, what do you miss the most about St. Louis? I miss my fans. The fans that I had in St. Louis were incredibly loyal. They still are. I'm in touch with a lot of them. That's what I like about St. Louisans. They are loyal. They stick with you. That's what I miss, that good old Miss Midwestern loyalty. <laughs> well said, well said. Uh, so can we get a sneak peek of what's coming? What's, uh, what's next for you? I'm doing another book in the Angela Richmond series. It's called Death Grip. Uh, I'm on Chapter 16, and that should be out next next spring, provided I finish. <laughs> <laughs> I will finish, so I'm working on that. And I also have a short story out in a new collection that features uh, uh, songs by Joni Mitchell. Oh, really? Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, nice. Yeah. That was fun. It's called the beat of the the beat of black wings. Is is each of the short stories kind of like themed around one of her songs? Yes. Yeah, that sounds pretty fun. Yeah. Mine, is, <laughs> mine is themed around dog eat dog. Oh, nice. That's definitely got to be one we have to check out. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of that, uh, I'm the host of the our mystery club here at Kirkwood. Public Library, and I can say that last November we read the third book in the Death Investigator series, The Ice Blonde. We enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm I'm glad you like that. I don't want to spoil the, the ending, but I had a good time using that unusual form of death. <laughs> yes, uh, all patrons, you got to come check it out and see how it ends for yourself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And that that form of death I did learn about in the Death Investigators course. So it's it's very useful for interesting ways to kill people. Huh. Um, <laughs> wow, that is interesting. But, now I'm kind of interested in taking this course. Now you've got my curiosity peaked. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I learned is that I would not get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm far too squeamish. I, I think... Probably not for me. I love yep. reading about it, but seeing it, that would be another thing altogether. Yep. Well, in this course, we saw a lot of autopsies and we saw a lot of um, uh, dead people, but it was presented on film and tape and slides. So there was kind of that screen in front of you that you never actually saw the body. Oh, okay. And that, that helped you get used to it. One of the things, one of the pathologists had his collection of photos of tattoos. I can tell you that if you see anyone with a born to lose tattoo, they are going to. Oh, no. um, they wind up quite frequently on an autopsy table. And the most dramatic example was a man who had born to lose on his forehead and over it was a gunshot wound. Oh, that's uh, calling so, down the thunder. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Being librarians, we love to end on this question, Elaine. What book has had the greatest impact on you? And uh, and or what should what should we be reading right now? All right. 
that's had the greatest impact on me was Mark Twain. I mean, his work. He's a, a native St. Louisan, and I am fascinated by how modern he sounds. And I think that, that Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer are two of the best books in American literature. And it bothers me very much that sometimes they are censored because people don't understand what was said in those days. I really, I really, really recommend anything by Mark Twain. And also reading about his life, it was fascinating. Here was a man who went from rags to riches and back to rags, and then he took a tour of the world to pay off his debt. So he's, he's an amazing man. And as for books that I've recently been reading and liked, I think my most recent one was The Other Misses by Mary Kubica. Oh, yep. I've heard about it. I haven't had a chance to read it. It's on my list. <laughs> it's, it's a really good domestic thriller. And Mary Kubica, and uh, I heard her speak. She's an excellent speaker. Well, neat. But that's definitely something we'll have to check out. Now, something else you want to check out is if you're familiar with Charlene Harris. I am. Uh, she did the Suki Stackhouse series. Mm-hmm. She has a new series. The current one is called A Longer Fall. Oh, neat. Nice. Yeah. And it's it's set in an alternative United States in the 1930s. And it's got a little bit of magic in it. And I think it's it's really well done. Her character is called Gunny Rose. Gunny Rose, actually, she's a gun for hire. <laughs> that so sounds it's, pretty it neat. It really is a fascinating series. Yeah, we'll definitely have to take a look at that one. That sounds good. Well, our guest today has been Elaine Beats. A Star is Dead will be available in bookstores on April 7th and right here at the Kirkwood Public Library. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been, been a fun discussion. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for having my books. Oh, it is our pleasure. Well, Recommendations is up next, one of Jagisha and I's favorite things to do on the podcast. And this month, we're going a little different. We realized that we were pretty heavy into fiction in our recommendations, and so we decided to uh, take a step back from it and do some nonfiction, which is just as important as anything else. What uh, have you been, what are you eager to talk about, Jagisha? Let's start with Stephen King. I know what you're thinking. He's a fiction writer, but he's... We're going to talk about killer clowns? <laughs> Actually, we're going to talk about how he came up with killer clowns. That sounds even better. He has a memoir slash writing book called On Writing. It came out a few years ago, but I absolutely love this book because he talks about his life and it's a little bit um, autobiographical. So he talks about his life as a kid growing up and, and then later on as an adult and how he came to write monster books, basically. Because that's, I mean, he writes in the horror genre. He does indeed. But I mean, I would argue that his work often transcends that. It's, it's so easy to call him you know, a horror writer, but at this point, he's definitely not. And even the even his most scariest books have such depth beyond what I would classify as just the most simplest horror. You know? Yes, I, I absolutely would agree. So if you're looking for just a nice, fun read and a little bit of, um, if you like the biography type books, then this is a good one that I recommend. And it also goes into his writing process, which I always love to learn about when it comes to authors. I am constantly curious how the creative process works for Everybody, just about. Certainly, because it seems to be different for every person we talk to. Exactly. 
So, Ryan, what's on your list? Well, uh, this is one of my all-time favorite nonfiction books, um, The Devil in the White City. This is uh, this came out some years back uh, by Eric Larson, and it was a fairly popular one. So I imagine a lot of our patrons has read it, but for those of you who have it, this is definitely one that you need to pick up. Or if you have read it, well, it's time to read it again. It's a very interesting story about basically the lives of two men as they kind of intersect uh, during the world's Columbian Exposition. Uh, it was about the life of Daniel Burnham, who was the architect of that. And also it's the story of H.H. H. Holmes, or Herman Mudgett, as he was born, who was one of uh, America's most scariest serial killers, essentially. And certainly, if not the first, the one of the earliest. He, at that time where the World's Fair was going on, uh, he had essentially built himself a murder castle, building designed to essentially kill people. And it's just kind of the story of what was going on in Chicago uh, during the World's Fair at that time. And it it's nonfiction, but it's, it's so well written. It reads like a novel itself. It's just an interesting, easy read about some pretty heavy topics. And being somebody who does not get enough nonfiction in their diet, this is one of the best. Nice. That's a good one. And I haven't read that one, but that has been on my list for a very long time. I just haven't gotten around to it. And he's got, uh, Eric Larson has other books that I would recommend that you check out. Thunderstruck and Dead Wake are very good reads. Uh, he's got a new one coming out that I recommended on the podcast that I was excited about reading this year. I have, at this time, I have not had a chance to read it, but it's going to be about Winston Churchill. And I imagine that'll be a very interesting book as well. Very nice. So next on my list is Bill Bryson. So oh, I'm, one of my favorites as well. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to recommend this author. I can't really pick a favorite book of his. Um, I've enjoyed A Walk in the Woods, which I've mentioned before on this podcast. But he's also written another book called In Sunburn Country, which is all about traveling to Australia. That's a really good read, too. Yes. And then he's written um, A Short History of Nearly Everything, which is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So Bill Bryson tends to write about so many different topics, from history to travel to science. So I just, just pick him up and, and start. And he's got this great way of narrating mm -hmm. uh, or writing, I should say. It sounds very um, conversational. It's very entertaining and often humorous. Yes. Yeah. Very funny. So, so Ryan, what's next on your list? So for my next one is going to be a documentary film. It's one that's been out for a while as well, and but it's probably lesser known compared to The Devil in the White City and Bill Bryson. It's the movie King of Kong or A Fistful of Quarters. And it's a pretty entertaining film. It's basically the story of a out-of-work uh laid off school teacher named Steve Wiebe. And so he decides to basically spend his time by playing a Donkey Kong cabinet arcade game out in his garage. And he ends up becoming incredibly good at it. And it's basically his story about, well, and then his kids kind of get him to basically go for the, you know, the world champion of Donkey Kong. Uh, and so it's basically his story about trying to do this, while at the same time, it's the story of a gentleman named Billy Mitchell, uh, who at that time held the Donkey Kong record. And basically, it kind of becomes the two of them going head to head. Billy becomes this character who kind of pulls out all these stops to try to prevent Steve from getting close to his record. It, it's a really interesting and complex film about 
you know, two characters who are kind of locked in the pseudo combat. It watches a lot like a Gus Van Zandt film, kind of in the best in show feel, or like it, it almost, it's almost a comedy, but it's a real life event. So it's a very interesting documentary. And uh, if you like arcades or if you just like, you know, those kind of stories, I would definitely recommend The King of Kong. All right. That sounds good. Should I ask who won? Or I guess maybe that's a spoiler. <laughs> well, that is a spoiler. And, you know, again, like all these things, like a movie, you can have a definitive ending, but real life doesn't always work that way. And so I feel like the ending is definitely a good ending to the story. Okay. But, you know, we all go on. All right. Well, you'll have to check it out and see for yourself what happens. Some of the nonfiction books that I tend to read are either how-to books or biographies. So my next book is another biography. And I highly recommend Steve Jobs, a biography by Walter Isaacson. This book is incredibly well-written. He interviewed Steve Jobs while he was still alive and got a lot about Steve Jobs and his life. And Steve Jobs is just a very interesting character. He, at one point in his life, was a fruitinarian, so he only ate fruit. It talks about his startup of Apple and of Pixar. So I highly recommend this book. Yes, Steve Jobs, very interesting character. That's got to be a very good read. It is. and Speaking of complex people, right? Exactly. I tend to gear towards creative. So he is another creative person, and his process was just very different. All right, my last recommendation for this month is the book Dead Mountain by Donnie Escher. And this is the true story of the Daedalof Pass incident, which is one of the biggest kind of scariest history mysteries. History. I love that. History mysteries. He's got rhymes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I said that poorly, though. One of the more scarier his history mysteries. Well, in February of 1959, so like nine hikers go out into the Russian wilderness, essentially off the, well, towards the Daedalof Pass, which is, I've already forgotten the name of the, it's basically the Dead Mount, translates out. And so they go out there and then they die under mysterious circumstances. They disappear and when people, you know, go to look for them, they find that they had fled the tent that they were staying in without proper clothing. They were found with elevated levels of radiation. There are other things that are a little bit scarier and spookier that would make it for like a good Halloween read. But it's one of those very interesting stories that sadly, like, we'll never really know the explanation for what happened at that point. The book is very interesting. It kind of details, you know, leading up to it and then the investigation and then you know, kind of what happened after that. So it's it's definitely one of those that if you kind of like a spooky story, the Roanoke disappearance or Mary Celeste. This is one of the more scarier ones that I think, because when they find these nine people, well, what happened? To this day, we don't have a complete answer, but the book is very interesting. Oh, I am intrigued. Okay, I'm probably going to go check this out right now. You've got me wondering it's about very, it. It's very good. It's called The Dead Mountain, and what got me excited about it, I was listening to the podcast Stuff You Missed in History Class. They did an episode for one of their Halloween years on the Daedalus Pass incident, and it's, oh, it sends chills down my spine, and so I decided I had to learn more. So I read Dead Mountain. Nice. Well, Kirkwood, that was our list of nonfiction recommendations. If you've got any suggestions, please leave a comment and let us know what you like to read or what you thought of our recommendations. We'd love to hear from you. 
So that was our April episode. We're so glad that you could join us, Kirkwood. And we have a special treat for you. Since April is Poetry Month, Allison C. Rollins was so kind to record a poetry reading for us that she's going to take us out of the episode with. So without further ado, Allison, would you please? Parable of the Goldfinch with a nod to Maggie Nelson. I think you overestimate the maturity of adults. If a man who thinks he is a king is mad, a king who thinks he is a king is no less so. Heavy is the light head that crowns before the leaves loosen. Beneath the mask of a father is a grapefruit, a boy in fear of his own fingers. From fear's fetus comes the notion of gratitude. We are indebted even before we are born. My occasional chin hairs are masculine plural because our tongues are a violent pink and I cannot speak of blood without teeth because I never learned how to whistle and I can't seem to kick this body. I have adopted this brittle lake of truth. On one hand sits a song, on the other my father eats a bird. <laughs>